We are so glad you joined us today on our podcast. We would love to continue to connect with you throughout the week. And to do that, you can check us out at substancechurch.com or on social media by searching at SubstanceMN or Substance Church. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. What is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. You made it to church, and we just want to welcome everybody joining us at our downtown campus, Westside, Monterey, churches all over the world. We love you, and we are so blessed that we get to do church together. And and again, if you're newer to Substance, we're just a family. We're just a big family, and we want to adopt you if you don't have a church family. Uh, There's just nothing better than doing life with a bunch of other people and just going on the great journey of life together. And of course, today, you're gonna be super glad you are in church today because we are adding to our ongoing teaching series called Tough Questions About Faith and and the Bible. And really, uh, if you you go to our website, substancechurch.com, there's a particular page on our website, uh, substancechurch.com forward slash tough dash questions, tough dash questions questions. And really, uh, what you're going to find there is you're going to find a whole bunch of sermons that I've done that are kind of geared towards people who are skeptical about Christianity. So how do we know God exists? How do we know Jesus is God? How do we know all, the, the, all these types of questions that I think I had to sort through? And, and I, I, I know that uh, a lot of you might be in that same place. We have a lot of you who maybe you're newer to the faith or maybe you wouldn't exactly call yourself a Christian quite yet but you want, you're wrestling through some of these topics, I wanna encourage you to, to go there. And hey, even if you're not a skeptic, let's say you're a, a committed long-term Christian, you gotta be able to answer these types of questions when non-Christians ask you. You know what I'm saying? So this is something that all of us need to learn how to, to develop in our own hearts. Now, uh, with all that said, though, I want to I give you a little history of substance. Way back in the beginning, when my wife planted this church, um, we kind of had to do everything. I kind of had to do everything. I went from pastoring a church with all sorts of staff to when we moved to the Twin Cities, planted this church, we started from scratch, okay? So like, what I mean is, like, I drove the church trailer, and everything our church owned was in that trailer. You know what I'm saying? And I helped set up the sound system every single week, plug in every single chord. I led worship. Some of you are like, I'd like to see that. And then I preached, and then I tore it all down, and then I even did the info line. We, we had an info line in those days, 86699-substance. Very easy. You know what I'm saying? It was like before. And then we had a website. Everybody's like, ooh, a website. I would have to, but, but the thing that I hated the most The thing that I was like, Lord, someday I want you to provide someone to help me do the church bulletin. I hated the bulletin. I had to update the bulletin every single week. And we thought we were so cool because we didn't call it the bulletin. We called it the bullet. You know, the substance bullet. And we had like all the church announcements. And the reason why I hated it is because no matter how hard I tried, I could not. I could not give any church announcements in there without putting like five typos. I don't know what is going on. I was terrible at it. I I was just like, I I would constantly make mistakes every single week in the bulletin, then I'd have to correct it in my sermon. I mean, every single week, people would come to church and they'd be like, what mistake has Pastor Peter made in the bulletin this week? And like, is it, oh, is he going to accidentally announce that baptisms are a decade away? 
maybe. You know, did he change the name of our church to Sustenance Church, or is that autocorrect? You don't know. I don't even know. You know what I'm saying? Okay, but none of my mistakes were as bad as the ones that I'm about to show you now, and these are totally true bulletin mistakes, and thankfully they happened in other churches. Thursday at 5 p.m., there will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All ladies wishing to be little mothers, please meet with the pastor in his study. I don't know what's going on in that church, but man, I'm not sure. You know, somebody, commas, you know, were very important. Okay, here's another one, okay? For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. You mean I've had a child all of these years living in the nursery? Come on, people, commas. Once again, commas, they matter, okay? No, this one I love. Tonight's sermon, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. You wanna know what hell feels like? Come on, people, bullet points, separate bullet points. You don't have to fit all of the announcements in one sentence. My gosh, okay. Now, uh, this, we don't do this at our church, but at a lot of churches, they put floral arrangements when people die or when people are born. And they're like, the rosebud on the altar this morning is to announce the birth of David Allen Belzer, the sin of Reverend and Mrs. Julius Belzer. <laughs> Come on, let's admit it. Some kids were born in sin, okay? Might as well just call it out in the bulletin. You know what I'm saying? Or, or, or here's another one. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> we can help you with getting rid of yourself. Okay, now, the ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind and they may be seen in the church basement on Friday <laughs> afternoon. Okay, that will grow your church for all the wrong reasons, right? It started off as a simple clothing swap, and uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, the that refers to the clothing, not the ladies, and uh, okay, get your mind out of the gutter. It's Sunday morning, people, come on, seriously. Now, okay, now, the reason why I showed you all of these is because I'm just making the simple point, and it's this, everyone makes mistakes, am I right, okay? You, you, you knew you married Mr. Right. You didn't know his name was always right. You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you, everyone makes mistakes at some point. And so the, even good people, even good people make bad mistakes. And so, so then when, the reason why I bring that up is because the question today that I want to answer, the tough question is this, what makes the apostles who wrote the New Testament any different than any of us? How do we know they didn't make a whole bunch of mistakes, right? I mean, how do we know that the apostles weren't like, you know what, I'm not sure Jesus said this, but uh, it's a great statement, okay? I saw it on Twitter the other day. I think it preaches well. You know what I mean? How do we know that the apostles didn't like add to the teachings of Jesus without our awareness? How do we know, how can we say the Bible is without errors. I mean, how do we know somebody somewhere didn't change it or add to it before it got to us, okay? So once again, if you go back to our, our church website, substancechurch.com forward slash tough dash questions, you're gonna find a sermon there 
called Aren't There Errors in the Bible, okay? I, I actually preached an entire sermon on a lot of these questions, and I'm not gonna re-preach it today, but, but I, I am gonna quickly recap that because I did it a little while ago. Uh, but again, I, I just want you to know it's there so that if anything I say in the next like three minutes is interesting to you, make sure you go back and, and rewatch that because I covered a lot of fundamentals. Like, is the Bible historically reliable? A lot of accusations will say, oh, the Bible is not even accurate with history, and then they point it out, and then all of a sudden, five years later, archeologists prove, oh yeah, it was accurate, okay? so. I do believe the Bible is historically accurate, and I believe that there's all sorts of secular sources that confirm the Bible. Another classic accusation against the reliability of Scripture is people say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. And of course, every time somebody's ever said that to me, here's what I always say to them. Show it to me. Show me where the Bible contradicts itself, okay? Nine out of 10 people who say that can't even quote a single contradiction because they're just parroting something that somebody else said, okay? And then there's that one person who's like, I can show you where the Bible contradicts itself. And I'm like, good, show me where it is. And then they'll show it to me. And then usually, like, it's super easy to explain, oh, that's not a contradiction. That's just two different views of the same angle of the, or different angles of the same experience. It does, they don't, they actually complement one another. In fact, actually, I've got entire books that catalog every accusation that's ever been made about that. Those of you who, who bought Norman Geisler's Baker's book of, uh, of Christian apologetics, he literally lists out 17 categories of accusations people make against the Bible and its contradiction and then defends every last one of them. And so just, just I, I want you to know there's resources out there for people who who make these accusations because they're actually unfounded. Another classic accusation is that, oh, there's all sorts of lost books of the Bible. I remember like when Da Vinci Code, the movie uh, and the novel came out. In the novel, it's like all fake history and he says, oh, there's like 80 gospels that were viciously destroyed at around 400 AD, completely false. That did not happen at all. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, well, then who assembled the Bible? Did they, you know, because the Discovery Channel will always do this, like, documentary every single year on the, the lost gospel of Thomas. You know, like, what? There was a lost gospel written by Thomas? No. Thomas never wrote a gospel, okay? The gospel of Thomas was actually a false gospel written, like, hundreds of years after the apostles were all dead. Everybody knew it wasn't written by Thomas. It had all sorts of words that didn't even exist until several hundred years after all the apostles were dead, and everybody knew it, right? Okay, so in the 300s, 400s, everyone knew there were all these, there, there were a bunch of fake books of the Bible, and so when the Romans started giving their lives to Christ, uh, a lot of the churches were like, hey, this is the first time in history where people might get confused, so we better just start clarifying what we've always known to be true, and that there's always only been four gospels, okay? So, and I unpack that in detail in that message. If that's interesting to you, make sure you go back to, to tough dash questions. One last accusation, just as, as recap, that I deal with in that sermon is critics will oftentimes say, oh, but there's all sorts of medieval clerics who over the years, over the centuries, when they would transcribe the, the parchments, Greek, and it, it, over the years, they would write their theology. They would add Bible verses into the scriptures. No, that is not true, and here's how we know that's not true, okay? We have over 24,000 manuscripts 
of the Greek New Testament, okay? And if you, you can literally lay them out side by side and compare them letter to letter, and get this, if you compare them letter to letter, you, only one half of 1% have any differences, and the vast majority of those differences are just spelling errors for words that didn't even have standardized spelling yet. I mean, come on. It, so like, if you're wondering if, if there's reliability to the Bible, yes, there is. And in a lot of these little molehills, they're turned into mountains by these critics. And so if you missed that sermon and you wanna hear more, make sure you go back, listen to that. It's kind of a part one uh, to this message today, which I wanna take it to new places, okay? So, because today, here's what we're gonna do, and I'm just like excited. Okay, today I want to go into some awkward questions, okay? And, and if, I, I actually believe that the best way to explore, to discover faith is to explore doubts, is to explore the tough questions. And here's some awkward questions we're going we're, we're gonna to ask and answer today, and it's this. If God could inspire the apostles to write Scripture, could God use me to add to Scripture? I mean, come on, I write some pretty good books, I'm not gonna lie, I write some good blogs. And you know, like, I like to imagine that when I write my blogs, I'm inspired too. I mean, like, why aren't my blogs considered scripture as well? Could I, could I be used by God to do that? You know what I'm saying, why not? Okay, we're gonna ask that. Or, or how can we say the Bible is without error, and the theological word for this is called ear, inerrant, inerrant, it means without errors, okay, inerrancy. If you ever wanna study this topic, what we're talking about today is inerrancy, and you can, you can Google it, you can read about it. The doctrine of inerrancy, if, if I was to go and explain the modern doctrine of inerrancy, which is the Bible is without errors, to the apostles, what would they say? If I could have a face-to-face -face conversation with the Apostle Paul, would he be like, whoa, 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 time out. I was just writing a letter to Timothy, okay? I was not writing eternal inerrant scripture, okay? What are you guys doing? You know, like, would the disciples say that to us if they knew that? You know what I'm saying? Would they say, after all these centuries, oh, you guys, like, blew everything out of proportion. I was just writing an opinion. That was not the Lord's words. You know what I'm saying? How, like, would they agree with us that they were writing inerrant scripture? Would they agree with that theology? And could we prove that they knew that they were writing scripture when they wrote it? Okay, now, as we dive into these questions, I know that some of these might sound heavy. I'm, I promise I'm gonna keep it lighthearted and fun. Okay, so you guys ready? Can we do this? All right, so, okay, here we go. Now, if you were to, like, take all of the different world religions, particularly Judeo-Christian religions, okay, so you have Judaism, they believe in the Old Testament, Christianity, we believe Old Testament, New Testament, and then you have all these kind of new, like different groups that would be considered, uh, they started out as like doctrine cults and other world religions. You have like, you have Islam and they have their own like holy scriptures, the Quran. And then you have like, you know, Mormons have the Book of Mormon, Latter-day Saints and, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. They have their own like weird translation that, that, that even secular atheist Greek scholars don't agree with their translation, but they, they have their own scriptures. And, and so like, if you were to like, kind of make a list of like, all of the details of these world religions and compare them, um, what is it that makes Christianity different than these religions? Because I think a lot of people will say, okay, Peter, you say that your Bible is like the authoritative one, but Come on, everybody makes those claims, right? I mean, come on. Like the, people would say the Quran is their, you know, they say the Quran is the holy book. These people say the Book of Mormon is the holy book. Uh, you know, like, you're just another truth claim. 
You know what I'm saying? What, what is it that makes Christianity actually different? Well, okay, let me, let me point out a couple differences. If you were to like do a little outline and, and categorize some of the differences, I think, you know, between some of these religious, the Judeo-Christian ones, I, 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 you know, each do have a holy book. Yeah, they, they, that, that they each have that in common. Each of them claim to be the truth. They each have that in common. But you know what? There's a lot of things that make Jesus in the Bible different. For example, okay, Jesus did not claim to be a prophet whatsoever. He claimed something way more audacious, maybe even absurd. He did not claim to be a prophet. He claimed to be God. And not only did he claim to be God, his disciples claimed he was God in the flesh. That's a pretty big claim, wouldn't you say? So this is not just a prophet. This is God in the flesh, at least so they claim, okay? And, and, and of course, allegedly, if I was to speak as a non-Christian, allegedly, Jesus not only claimed to be God, but he made the decision to prove it by raising from the dead. And of course, according to the Bible, not only did he raise himself from the dead, but he actually showed himself to over 500 people who witnessed his death, and then ultimately 500 people witnessed his resurrection, the Bible says. And so regardless of whether or not you believe in Christianity, at the very least, when you were to compare all these different religions side by side, you could at least say, hey, one of the differences about Christianity is that its claims are 10 times more audacious than these others because Jesus was not just a teacher, he was God. And Jesus didn't just say, hey, here's the truth and then die. He said, here's the truth, died, raised from the dead, showed himself to all these people. Okay, so even if you don't believe that, you have to at least say, okay, Christianity's claims are audacious on a level by a factor of like 100 that makes a lot of these other world religions feel kind of tame, right? Because this is just another dude with a great theory about life. Okay, so, uh, and, and the same actually could be said about the disciples of Christ. Okay, so now I've been talking about Christ in the, in the, in the, the holy scriptures, but let's, let's talk about the apostles. What makes the apostles, the followers, the disciples of Christ a little different than maybe some of the other uh, the, the, some of the other claims. Okay, I'm going to show you a few of these and three things particular that I want to unpack that are distinctive about the apostles. And just stick with me because these are going to be profound as we go along. Okay, number one, they got to you know allegedly, but they got to hang out with God in the flesh for several years. Okay, so now. Um, let's just say, just assume with me, let's say you're a skeptic, but assume with me Jesus in fact was God and he did in fact raise from the dead. Even if there were some errors in the Bible, and I don't personally believe there are, but let's just say that the, the apostles being just human put a bunch of errors in the Bible, okay? Even if their account was, you know, slightly inferior, they still had this advantage over you and I, and they got to hang out with God, listen to his teachings day after day after day after day for several years. And so their accounts would probably be, even if they had errors in them, they probably would be the closest thing you and I could possibly ever have to the truth. And we would be wise to read them and follow them as though they were inerrant, okay? Just based on that idea alone, okay? So now, again, uh, I, just keep moving with me. Just stick with me because I'm basing these on several assumptions, okay? Second thing that makes the apostles unique 
is that they were martyred to substantiate the truths that they taught, okay? The disciples of Christ were all put to death because they would not recant their convictions, okay? So, and the reason why that's important is because in legal speak, we'd call that a reluctant testimony. It's a testimony that they didn't really stand to gain anything. In fact, actually, they stand to lose everything. They were like whistleblowers to a society that wanted to believe something different, okay? They, they weren't just writing out clever stories to boost their own egos. They were writing, they were sharing a testimony that they knew was gonna result in their death and the death of everyone that they loved, okay? I mean, they not only paid for it, it, but I mean, their kids were fed to the lions for believing this. And so you're not going to just say this if you don't truly believe it. That's what I'm telling you. Okay. In fact, the only apostle that did not die a martyr's death was John. And, and actually he had several uh, attempts on his life. They actually tried to boil him alive in a big kettle of water and he survived and he was the lucky one. You know what I'm saying? So, okay. I'm pointing this out because uh, you know, the, in fact, the Apostle Peter was crucified on a cross. And of course, in history, legend has it that his last words were right before he was, right before he died, he turned to his wife and he said, my dear, he was talking to his wife, he said, my dear, remember the Lord. And they smeared him with pitch and they lit him on fire on a cross. And so the disciples, I'm sharing this because the disciples who wrote the Bible were not doing it for money. They were not even doing it for glory or comfort. Yeah, but Pastor Peter, hold on, because there's all sorts of people who die for stupid causes that we know aren't true. I mean, come on. I mean, think about like, just going to history. Think about like the Japanese kamikazes or even just think about modern suicide bombers. There, there's ideologues out there that are pretty extreme, right? I mean, so, I mean, you know, and, and I'll give you that, okay? People do die for their purposes and their causes all over the place. That doesn't substantiate the truth. But at the very least, okay, I, I'm simply pointing out that the apostles paid a great price for the message that they shared, and that does make them unique, okay? At the very least, okay? The third thing I wanna point out is that Jesus himself, and this is kind of an interesting one, Jesus himself promised that his apostles would have a supernatural ability to recall truth. They'd have a supernatural ability to recall truth. Now, um, if you don't deal with the facts regarding the resurrection of, of, of Christ, there's no sense talking about the scriptures and there's certainly no sense talking about the apostles, okay? In other words, if, if Jesus was merely a man, not the son of God, this promise would not be very sensational. You know what I'm saying? Because why? He's just another dude with a fake truth. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so if you assume that, that Jesus was not God, then I get it. This is not a sensational one. But for Christians, those of us who do believe Jesus was God, that he did raise from the dead, you know, this promise, this third one, is actually pretty stinking sensational because, you know, this is actually what sets the apostolic writing apart from everyone else, like me, okay? This is why, you know, I'm I will never be in a capital A apostle. You know what I'm saying? So check this out, okay? This is an interesting scripture. It's John 14, verse 26, okay? So Jesus, this is at the Last Supper. This is when Jesus is betrayed. You know, after this, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Je Jesus knows he's gonna die soon. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He's getting his disciples ready for the fact that he's leaving them, and they're kind of freaking out, thinking, what do you mean you're leaving us? They're getting kind of scared. And so this is, look, look at how he reassures the apostles about his departure, okay? John 14. 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, and everybody's like, the Holy Spirit, that's kind of interesting, okay? The Holy, so, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, 
who the Father will send in my name will, what? Teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Okay, that's a pretty big promise. And then, that's, and then verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. May my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Okay, so talk about a major promise right up here uh, that you're gonna remember everything by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is comforting them here, saying you're not gonna forget anything I have taught you, and even the questions that you are gonna to start to ask along the way, and there's gonna be a whole bunch of them, uh, but even, even those questions that you're gonna have figured out along this chaotic life that you have, the Holy Spirit is gonna teach you guys all things and it's gonna work out, okay? So, and, and then, I mean, that's a pretty huge promise, and then two chapters later, he adds to this, he expands on it, John 16, but when he, the Spirit of truth comes, there's the Holy Spirit again, he will what? guide you into all truth. No wonder the apostles were encouraged. No wonder they experienced peace to go through the crazy ride that was about to happen, Jesus' crucifixion, his betrayal. I mean, no wonder they were reassured because God was basically guaranteeing them an almost magical ability to recall and discern truth. Now, don't misunderstand me. This does not mean that the apostles are now perfect. And trust me, they all knew that they were not perfect. They were flawed individuals, okay? So Jesus was not saying everything you do from this point forward is perfect, okay? He was not saying that. But what he was saying is when it came to his teachings, the Spirit is gonna make sure you guys get things right. Does that make sense? Okay, so now, now back up with me. If you wanna know how inerrancy works, the doctrine of inerrancy, Okay, ultimately, this is, this is why we believe this is essential to Christianity. The same way that you and I trust in Jesus' promises for salvation is the same way we trust that in Jesus' promise that his apostles would get it right. Does that make sense? Let me say that again, okay? In the same way that we trust in Jesus' promises for salvation by grace through faith, the scriptures, we also trust in Jesus' promises that the apostles would get his message straight. So what I'm basically telling you is that it's still a faith thing, okay? I have not eliminated the need for faith. I'm not giving you an argument that's so airtight that any non-Christian would ever, you know, who could disagree? No, I am saying very clearly that it does require faith to believe it, okay? However, okay, think about it from the apostle standpoint, okay? Jesus makes this promise to them. You're gonna remember everything. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. It's gonna be super cool. It's gonna be peace, okay? All that kind of stuff. Think about what happened right after Jesus said those words, you know, especially at the Last Supper, okay? Right after these promises were made, he got betrayed. He died, which was crazy. He got crucified before their very eyes. Then even crazier, he literally rose from the dead. He literally fulfilled an impossible number of Old Testament prophecies. And then Acts 1-3 says, after his suffering, after all of this, Christ presented himself to them and gave what? Many convincing Proves. I love that expression. He gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. How many of you know that added a little bit of credibility to his promise? Okay, when he, when he rose from the dead and is like, 
Okay, and then he shows himself to them for 40 days, 40, period of 40 days. How cool would that be to have been able to sit in the room? Man, I wish I could have been in those messages with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, hanging out with the resurrected Christ, and he's giving them, okay, here's some follow-up stuff that you guys need to know before I split. You know what I'm saying? Like, how cool would that have been? They must have all been in the room like, I just can't believe he's standing here. Because, I mean, he's got the wounds. They're looking at him, and he's alive. And they're thinking, well, okay, now I believe that he's capable of, if he can fulfill his promise to raise from the dead, he can fulfill his promise for my brain to get things right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just saying, it added a little bit of credibility. And remember, this promise was made to a select group of individuals, not you and me. And I point that out because, you know, uh, the, the idea is, is that we can say the apostles' teachings are inerrant, even though the people, even though as humans they were not, okay? But, and maybe you're here and you're like, okay, just hold on a second, Pastor Peter, wait a second. Do you really, honest to God, think the Apostle Paul knew that he was writing eternal inerrant scripture, especially, especially when, say, like he was writing to the Corinthians or like writing a letter to Timothy? How, how do you know he wouldn't just say, I was just writing a letter to Tim, you know what I'm saying? Me and Tim, I didn't know that my group text would become a holy scripture. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, like do, you, do you really believe the Apostle Paul knew he was writing Scripture? And, and my answer to that question is yes, I do believe that he was writing Scripture. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles may have grasped how far-reaching or influential their words would be. However, they clearly revealed that they knew they were writing Scripture. And if you're out there and you're like, well, how? How do you know that? Here's how we know. Because there are several times when the apostles refer to their own writings as scripture, on par with the Old Testament scriptures, okay? So they, they, they elevated their own writings to a whole new level. Let me show you, okay? Uh, for example, the apostle Peter was writing in 2 Peter 3.16, and this is kind of interesting. This gives you a little insight into the apostle Peter. He's actually talking about Paul, okay? So the apostle Peter is talking about the Apostle Paul, and he says this. He, Paul, writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters regarding salvation. And I love this next sentence. He says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. First off, let me just stop there. I love that the Apostle Peter says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Even the Apostle Peter thought it was hard to understand. Thank God, because sometimes when I'm reading Paul, I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what is he saying? You know what I'm saying? Guess what? Paul was hard to read even in the first century. Come on, somebody. Does that encourage you? I don't know about you, but at least it just makes me feel like, okay, maybe I'm not an idiot. And the apostle Peter was saying to all these people, yeah, Paul's pretty smart. He's kind of hard for me to understand. I have to really like drink a Red Bull before I read Paul's letters. But okay, he's, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not. But I, okay, you get the idea, okay? He says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. So, okay, wow. Even way back in those days, people would take a truth and then twist it. Wow. So maybe things aren't so new today. Day, right? Right? So people are twisting, but then listen to how he says it. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, the apostle Peter is actually calling Paul's letter scripture. 
Now, the, the, the reason why we also can know this is because the, the word that, Paul, that Peter uses here is graphe. This was a Greek word that was exclusively for authoritative scripture, okay? We're talking about like scripture on, on par, not just writings, but holy writings, sacred writings. And, and, and so the apostle Peter is literally calling Paul, while they're still alive, his letters are scripture, okay? There's another verse like this, okay? I'm not going to actually read it to you for the sake of time, but 1 Timothy 5.18, if you want to write that down, 1 Timothy 5.18, it's, it's similar to this scripture in the sense that Paul actually quotes the gospel of Luke, and then he calls it graphe, okay? So he, he calls the gospel of Luke authoritative scripture. Now, the reason why that's profound is because it shows that the gospels, the four gospels, were already viewed on the same level as authoritative Old Testament scripture, even while the apostles were still alive. And this shows us that the apostles did know that they were writing scripture. And, and, and listen, I don't want you to get lost in all these arguments that I'm giving you and then miss the greater point, and it's this. Listen to me, church. God's word is alive. It's unique. It has the power to change lives. And maybe you're here today and you're wondering, does God have the power to heal? Yes, his word says so. And it's true. And I believe that if you take that word and you mix it with your faith, that's where the Bible says in Hebrews 4, it actually results in supernatural provision. This is not a philosophy. This is an invasion of spiritual power. And I'm not asking you to read these scriptures as just another ideology amidst ideologies. I'm asking you to say, what if these promises actually were true? Mix it with faith and watch the, the supernatural experience that flows out of that. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying ultimately, scripture, it's God-breathed. There, there's something unique about it that, that goes beyond normal writing, 2 Timothy 3.16. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There was always this supernatural guiding, this channeling of the words, this channeling of the heart, this, this, the, to getting the, the, the things that were written to be accurate in a level that most of us could only dream about. You know what I'm saying? And I, I, a few years ago, I have, so I've got this, this friend, Rob and Bob Hoskins, they, they oversee an organization called One Hope that just gets the Bible all over the world. And of course, uh, those of you who give here at Substance, actually a portion of your finances goes uh, to d get Bibles into the hands of people all over the world. We've, we've helped, uh, along with One Hope, we've helped actually be a part of a movement that's gotten over a billion Bibles around planet Earth. And of course, uh, Bob was, was telling me years ago about a group of Christians that were helping to distribute the scriptures for One Hope in South America. They were giving away uh, gospels in South America. And these young evangelists were on the street corner and, and people, as they were coming home from work, they would just give them a gospel. And of course, one guy was like, what book are you doing? What, what is this? And he, he grabbed it and it, he just kind of stood there on the, on the corner and started reading it. And then when, the moment he realized that it was a gospel of Jesus Christ, he suddenly got really angry and agitated. He walked right up to those, th those young evangelists and he started tearing it up and said, don't ever give 
people this crap and he just started tearing it up and, and throwing it all over the place. He wanted to make sure they understood he does not approve. And you have to understand at that time in that particular country, um, there was all this Marxist socialist literature flooding the country that was blaming all of the ills of society. It's all due to Christians. Christians are the reason why we're suffering. Christ religion is what's wrecking us. What we need is a, a socialist government to solve all of our problems. And so, uh, you know, the evangelists weren't surprised that this guy was upset because there was so much brainwashing going on at that time. Well, well that, that man who ripped it up, he went home that night and of course, while he, was, while he got home, he put all of his stuff down and all of a sudden he, he noticed that there was a little piece of the, the, the paper of the booklet that he ripped up. It kind of clung to his shirt. It clung to his sleeve like static. You know what I mean? It was just this little piece of paper and he, he kind of picked it off and, and it fell on the floor and now he's got to, he picked it up and the only words that he could read on this little torn up piece of paper said this, and the Lord said, dot, dot, dot. And that was it. And he looked at it and he's like, and the Lord said what? And then he's like, I don't care. And then he, he took it and threw it in the trash with a curse and said, I don't give a rip about what the Lord said. But then that phrase, it just kind of stuck in his heart. And all evening, he kept thinking, and the Lord said, what did the Lord say? And the Lord said, and the Lord, all throughout dinner, and the Lord said, and the Lord said what? And then that night, Guess what? He had a nightmare about it, all he could dream about. And the Lord said, I ripped it up. I didn't hear what the Lord said. What did the Lord say? What did the Lord say? And he dreamed about it all night. He didn't get a, he barely got any sleep that night. He woke up the next morning and he thought, why am I obsessed about these three words? And the Lord said, or these four words, why am I obsessed with it? And, and he's like, he couldn't stop thinking about it all day. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and, 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 Finally, he, he was coming home from work that night, the next day, and thinking about the same four words. And as he came home from work, all of a sudden, there were the same young evangelists giving away the same books on the street corner. And finally, so Bob actually told me, he goes, that, that man ran up to these young Christians and he goes, I can't stand it anymore. You, you have to tell me, what did the Lord say? You know the thing I ripped up yesterday? I'm just, I'm just curious. What, and they thought, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, you're the guy who like ripped it up. Like, I'm not gonna give you another one. And he goes, no, I, I'm genuinely curious. Like, what, what did he say? And then they're like, you really want to know? And he's like, yes, I want to know. And so they opened up the gospel and, and they started reading it to him and they, they just explained it all to him. And finally he was like, he was just so compelled by what he said, he goes, you know what? I, I completely misjudged this. What, what, tell me more, tell me more. And they ended up leading that man to Christ. And guess what? That man is now a pastor in that country. And he, I mean, come on. I'm just saying a tiny scrap of God's word has that much power. Four words can change a person's destiny forever. Isn't that crazy? And, and, and here's the deal, church. I, I'm only giving you the tip of the iceberg here. I, I, I know there's, there's a lot of you who want to study all of this on a whole new level. And so I actually wrote a companion blog uh, that takes everything I've shared about the doctrine of inerrancy to the next level. And uh, it's at peterhaas.org. We'll probably try to link it on the tough-questions uh, page as well. But if you go to peterhaas.org, H-A-A-S, just, or just Google Peter Haas plus inerrancy, inerrancy or Bible reliability, it'll show up uh, and, and you'll be able to find that blog if you're watching online. But uh, with all of that said, let me just end by answering one last little cool question uh, 
about the, the, uh, about the Bible reliability, and it's this, okay? Just one last question, it's this. If God made the promise of inerrancy to the apostles, then why is it that we accept a few New Testament books that aren't written by the apostles? Did you ever wonder that? Well, okay, for example, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he wasn't an apostle, but keep in mind, he, Mark was the Apostle Peter's translator. He was actually the Apostle Peter's interpreter. So whenever Peter would go out and preach, he would take Mark with him. And so Mark literally knew all of his stories, all of his sermons. And so essentially, if you were to say it this way, the Gospel of Mark is Peter's Gospel. Okay, so if you think about it, just, just like the Gospel of Mark is Peter's Gospel, the Gospel of Luke is Paul's gospel, right? It's because the, the gospel of Luke was overseen by Paul, and yet Paul explicitly called the gospel graphe, scripture. And keep in mind, an ex-Pharisee like the apostle Paul would be hesitant to call anything scripture because he knew full well, Deuteronomy 4.2, God gives a very stern command with a curse if you add anything to scripture, okay, except on command. And so Paul knew that, so he wouldn't call anything graphe unless it really was. Does that make sense? Uh, and, and, and church, here's the bigger point behind all of this. Let me end with this, okay? I can give you endless intellectual arguments that undergird the trustworthiness of Scripture, that give, that give the why behind the what. But you know what? At the end of the day, what's the difference if we don't even read our Bibles anyway? You know what I mean? You know, like, what's the difference? Like, what could all these people that literally died because they possessed holy scriptures, whose kids were fed to the lions because they were caught with holy scriptures. What, like what good are, are all their sacrifices if you and I don't even read our Bibles anyway? And I'm not saying that to guilt you into reading your Bible. Trust me, I, I know it's kind of hard to get into Bible reading. And if you're one of those people, listen, that was actually for me too. I, I was not, I, I, I'm not, believe it or not, a natural reader, which is almost shocking based on how many books I currently read. Reading was a discipline that I had to learn over time, and I always encourage people, if you're a spurt Bible reader, and a spurt Bible reader is like a person who, let's say you read your Bible for like two weeks, and then you take a six-month break, and then you get hyped up, and then you're like, I'll read it for three more days, and then you take another four-month break, okay, that's called spurt reading. Now, if, if that's you, don't feel bad about it. Here's, here's how you fix that, okay? I always tell people, just do two minutes a day of Bible reading for two months. Two minutes for two months. Okay, and some of you are like, how in the world am I supposed to get anything out of the Bible in two minutes? You would be shocked, okay? The goal is not to, the, the goal is simply to establish a habit before you improve on your habit, okay? And then after, I, I would even set a clock, okay? After two months, you're guilt-free. You can stop. You know what I'm saying? Just after, then, and then after two months of doing it for two minutes, then increase it to five minutes. And then set an alarm clock. And the moment that clock goes off, hey, you stop and just go about your day, okay? Just in, in, in establish the habit and then improve the habit. And some of you, you will be shocked how much God can speak to you in just two minutes a day. As one last example of this, uh, many of you guys know that I help lead a church planting organization called The Ark, and we plant churches all over the world. And I remember I, I was helping to plant all these churches in Asia. We were like trying to evaluate what are some of the top models of church planting uh, in, in those regions, and then we find some of the, the, I got to meet a lot of the legendary leaders of the underground church uh, and hear some of their testimonies, and it's pretty powerful uh, hearing these testimonies. One of the leaders of one of these underground church movements is a woman who, for security reasons, I'm not going to share the story with her real name, but I, I am going to, uh, we're going to call her Mrs. Chen, just to keep it generic. Um, for 21 years, Mrs. Chen 
lived as a quadriplegic. She could not move her arms. She could not move her legs. And uh, uh, she, she had to be taken care of like a quadriplegic, her, which was a big burden for her. It was a big burden for her family. And of course, over time, the pain got so bad that they knew that, hey, I, I think I'm at the end of my life. Her son rushed her to the hospital and, and they found out that at the hospital that her organs were shutting down. She really only had days to live. And the doctors were like, hey, this, honestly, this is incurable. There's nothing we can do uh, to help her anymore except give her pain meds that will help her die more comfortably at home. Uh, and so they, they took her home to die. Well, right before they discharged her from the hospital, there was a nurse that came up to her. And this nurse happened to be a Christian. And she said, hey, I... I serve a God that I really believe can change everything for you. And I've got this little book called The, the Gospel of Mark, and it's just a little slice of, of the Bible. I, I just, hey, if you're even remotely open, just read this the moment you get home, and I really believe that it can change your life. And, and of course, sure enough, Mrs. Chen, the moment she got home, she made her son start reading this Gospel of Mark to her. And of course, he opened up the, the Gospel of Mark, and he read the very first verse, which goes like this. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. He just said half a sentence, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. He didn't even finish the sentence and suddenly Mrs. Chen's entire body started to jolt and move and, and, and like, like, a, like a seizure almost. And they're, like the whole family kind of stood up and is kind of freaking out like, oh no, like is this, is this like her final moment? Is she dying? And, and yet only seconds later, all of a sudden she stopped shaking. She sat up and she realized she was completely healed. She could move her arms and legs for the first time in 21 years. completely healed. Well, as you'd imagine, the whole family freaked out and she's like immediately like, keep reading. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, how do we keep reading? Keep reading. And so they, they literally read the entire gospel of Mark from beginning to end. They all gave their lives to Christ. And of course, the whole village was rocked by this because, you know, they'd all watched Mrs. Chen suffer for almost 21 years. So they're curious, like, what did you do? And she goes, well, we just started reading this like book. You want to read it with me? And so she literally read and reread the Gospel of Mark with hundreds of her neighbors. And by the end of the month, she had led over 600 people to Christ. Okay, well, get this. I mean, the report started getting around about Mrs. Chen and what she was doing and about this, this new, like, foreign religion she was getting into. And, of course, the leaders in the local government, they thought, no, this is like a Western political invasion. And they started to feel threatened. And so they started sending the police to her house to threaten her, stop telling people about this. And she's like, how am I supposed to stop? And, and of course, they started threatening. And then all the people that would convert, they knew they couldn't stop Mrs. Chen. And so a lot of these people were farmers. They started burning their crops. They started shooting their animals. And yet, these people were like, come on, how am I supposed to stop believing in it when I know it's an, it's, when I see this miracle? Look at Mrs. Chen, have you seen her? Like, that's not an ideology, that's a power. That's not a political worldview, that's an invasion of spiritual authority. That's totally different. And get this, Mrs. Chen ended up leading one of the greatest revivals of the 1990s Missiologists estimate that right around 70,000 people have now accepted Christ in that region as a result of that single miracle. But where did it start? It started with one Bible verse, not even a whole one. Listen to me, church. 
God's Word is living and it's active. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a book. It's not just a sentence. It's alive. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. It's alive. And listen, I want you to not just experience the scriptures and ideology. I want you to experience the invasion of spiritual power that comes when you and I take our faith, whatever little bit of amount we got, and we mix it with God's promises. And I don't know what you're going through, but this is what I do know, is my God is bigger than what you are going through. And if you would just even surrender to him right now, I just believe that the power of God will enter into this room and wherever room you're watching this. And so close your eyes and bow your heads and let's just do business. God, you see our faith is at all different places. And Lord, some of us, we're not even sure what to think about all this, but God, I believe that you're bigger than all of our doubts and all of our problems. And I pray today that you would just manifest yourself, that, that, that we would not just be learning about a world, another world religion, but that we would experience your spiritual power that would change us and result in the transformation of all of our neighbors, God. We don't wanna apprehend just another philosophy. We need your power. And so Holy Spirit, invade us, starting right here, right now, in the name of Jesus, we pray. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. Now, we're going to have fun with this. I just, uh, we're going to have fun with this. With all that said, we're going to have our campus pastors come on up and tell us where we're going to go next. I love you guys. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you would like to contribute to Substance financially, you can do so by visiting substancechurch.com slash giving and then select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening and be sure to check in next week for a new message.